0: That's Psalm One. <laughs> uh, a little bit of a, a little bit of a artistic license there, uh, to uh, to make it rhyme and things of that nature. But that's Psalm One. Keep- and maybe we'll keep these, and uh, I'll make a couple more copies, and maybe we can talk. Uh, maybe we can talk Ken and Leslie into doing that again the second hour. But I may have got the tune off a little bit, but we will refine it, and then we'll learn Psalm 2 and Psalm 3, and, and uh, as long as the Lord allows us to meet together on a weekly basis to, uh, to continue to uh, sing the scriptures together. All right, turn in your Bibles. Psalm 9. Psalm 9. We are talking about the righteousness of God. Last week we talked about what that means, his righteous acts that are the result of his character who he is, um, his nature, that there is not this law above God that says, God, you must act a certain way. No, that, law, that righteousness is his nature. That goodness is his nature. And, and, and righteousness, therefore, is not just nominalistic. It's not something he created. It's not arbitrary. Right and wrong are right and wrong because it is the very nature of God Righteousness is. that. I mean, I didn't know how to finish that sentence. but uh, That righteousness is that very nature of God. So it's not a karmistic, pantheistic, this is a law that exists above all things. And if there are any gods, that God is acting in accordance with that law that is above him. Nor is it nominalistic. It's something under God that is arbitrarily created by him. Um, uh, it is theistic, it is God. Righteousness is His nature. Goodness is His nature. And therefore, there will never be a time where murder is right. Correct? There will never be a time where falsehood is right. There will never be a time where truth is an unrighteous thing, or, or, uh, or so you can go on and on and down the line. Why? Because these are a reflection, the laws that we have are a reflection of the very nature of God himself. He is righteousness. And I think that's a very important thing for us to understand because, because, well, I say that, I've been noticing, I've been saying that phrase, it's very important for us to understand this or that, but it is, in this case, a very, very important for us to understand uh, where righteousness comes from. It comes from the very nature of God. And that becomes the standard by which we act, by which we live. We live out His righteousness. We live according to His character and according to His purpose. He is the rock, His work is perfect, and all His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. That is what is predicated Uh, Of our God, so we're going to pick up from there, and we're going to today talk about His righteous deeds, and then uh, next week we're going to get into some some uh, some controversial stuff about uh, God's jealousy, God's hatred, God's wrath, uh, and things of that nature. Basically, God's holiness and what that looks like, and how we understand that as His as his righteous character. Um, But his righteousness, like we saw last week, is kinned to his goodness. Um, In fact, his righteous deeds are are very uh, akin to his goodness, like I hope we will see today. Uh, Psalm 9, starting in verse 7. Psalm 9, 7. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has... He has prepared his throne for judgment. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. So we're going from his righteous character to his righteous judgment here. The Lord shall, the Lord also will rather, be a refuge for the oppressed. A refuge in times... Of trouble. So continuing to build off Frames' outline here, uh, systematic theology, um, last week we saw what makes righteousness normative. What norms righteousness is his nature, his character. This is the situational aspect of his righteousness. Um, his standards his judgments, his goodness, whatever you want to say, applied in reality, in history, in time. Uh, So we're not just taught we're moving away from just seeing his righteousness as his nature to how God acts and does things in time. And ultimately, how those things will triumph. His righteousness will triumph. Uh, a veil one day, and we, we don't feel like that right now, because we seem, it seems that wickedness is prevailing, right? Um, it seems, with few exceptions, that the church is losing, and the wickedness of our culture is winning. Churches, this is not the only church that has empty pews. I drove by a couple that a few years ago were had parking lots full, and they're not today. And they're not every week I pass by them. And it seems like the church is dwindling. The right side is losing. And wickedness is prevailing, but ultimately it will not. The gates of hell will not prevail. So we're not just talking about applying God's standards. We're talking about ultimately here as we read how those righteous standards will ultimately prevail. We sing sometimes, we're on the winning side. And we are. We are victorious. We, and we shall with Christ be victorious So righteousness is not only a standard for governing our conduct as we try to be like God, but it is here also, as we read and included verse 9 in the declaration of verse 7 and 8, a means of salvation. We are saved by His righteousness. Uh, The subjects here of the psalmist are saved by his righteousness. The Lord also, that is, added upon his righteousness or from his righteousness, be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. So his righteous judgments are a means of salvation. They ultimately, as we're going to find in the New Testament our sole means of salvation is the righteousness of our god i want to turn to first samuel and we're going to see here in first samuel how how in history how in history first samuel chapter 12, his righteous acts are spoken of and how they are connected with his deliverance. Start in 12, 6, 1 Samuel 12, 6. And Samuel said unto the people, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. What are these righteous acts? When Jacob was come into Egypt and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of, the, out of Egypt and made them to dwell in his place, this place. And when they forgot the Lord, you hear this, They forgot the Lord. He sold them in the hand of Sisera, captain of the the hosts of Hazar, into the land of the Philistines, into the hand, hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried unto the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord. And have served Balaam and Ashtoreth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies and we will serve thee. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel. And you're seeing how this is going. These are called the righteous acts of God. To deliver who? Sinners. You see that? Sinners who cried to him. And this is not counted as acts of grace, acts of mercy. These are counted in the scripture by Samuel the prophet as acts or deeds of righteousness. And that does not really make sense to us, does it? We would have replaced, if we were writing this, we would have said, these are his deeds of mercy. These are his deeds of absolute grace towards sinners. No, that's, but that is, however, not how Samuel spoke. He said, these are not just acts of love or mercy or grace. These are righteous acts towards sinners, delivering them from the consequences of their sinfulness. Now, this is automatically in our minds. Hopefully, we're seeing the irony or the or the seeming contradiction, apparent contradiction of these things. Sinners, under the righteousness of God, deserve judgment, and yet God is righteous to deliver them. Amen? That's, and that's exactly what we're, what ultimately you were reading there in Psalm 9. Israel was sinful. Israel was disobedient. Israel went after other gods. Israel turned from God to Ashtaroth, from God to Balaam, from God to whatever evil deity uh, and unrighteous and unho- unholy thing they could think of, and God was righteous to deliver them. This is an amazing turn of events. And more striking, if you'll turn to Isaiah uh, 46, we see that this is not just an isolated declaration of his righteousness in delivering sinners. Here in Isaiah 46, verse 12, he says, "...hearken unto me, you stout-hearted, that are far from righteousness." I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off and my salvation shall not tarry. I will place salvation in Zion and Israel for Israel, my glory. Again, in verse 12, who is he talking to? The stout hearted, the wicked, the people that are far from righteousness. And he says, I am going to bring my righteousness to you, my salvation to you that salvation here is His righteousness being applied to an unrighteous people. An amazing turn of events. So, and and this continues to be a theme throughout. These are just a couple instances, but this continues to be a theme when we're talking about His righteousness as it is situationally brought forth into this world. He brings his righteousness near to unrighteous people and delivers them by his righteousness. God's righteousness even brings forgiveness of sins in the New Testament. We saw this last week. Uh, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Not, uh, not, Not just faithful that that's, that's a covenantal term that we talked about before right the covenant of love that we have as believers in him but he is just he is righteous to forgive us we as sinners deserving of punishment deserving of wrath he's just to forgive and we ultimately as Christians know what the basis of that is that the basis of that is Christ, and we're and, and we're going to get there here shortly this morning. But just think of this: forgiveness from sin comes from God's righteousness, not His mercy specific only, not His love only, not His grace only. But He is righteous in doing these things. Uh, Psalm thirty four. Uh, Uh, says all about the deliverance of God. His eyes being toward the righteous, his ears open to their cry. We saw that also in the declaration of Psalm. What was that which caused him to turn to them? They cried unto him. They sought him and he turned to them. In Psalm 34, if you'll take time some time to read that, uh, we're not talking about sinless people, sinlessly perfect people, uh, Frame pointed out, but re- but relatively perfect people, um, upright people, God, God, people that God has deemed to be upright and has deemed Himself to be upright, delivering them. It might be good for us to take time and read Psalm 34. I didn't plan on it, but let's go ahead and go back to Psalm 34 and look at it. We sing sometimes those very first bars. Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened, their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around about them that fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. O fear the Lord, ye his saints, his sanctified ones." For there is no want to them that fear him. Young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open unto their cry. Why is he righteous to deliver sinners? Because he sees them as righteous. And you can read the rest of it at a time. And he goes on to even describe the righteous as people with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Uh, that's how that's how they are, are, uh, are talked about here, they are talked about as the righteous are described as the afflicted, the oppressed, the weak, the poor, the needy. And so, so it is in various Psalms. This is a theme in Psalms. You can look at Psalm 72, for instance, not right now, Psalm 10, Psalm 35, Psalm 68, 82, 113, 140, 146, Jeremiah 22, so on and so forth. These are themes for the righteous in relationship to their God. So, in Psalm 82, for instance, God berates human rulers because they show partiality to the wicked. You give just, and he commands them, give justice to the weak, to the fatherless, maintain the right of the poor, of the afflicted, the destitute, rescue the weak, the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And ultimately, this is what the Messiah would obey. When Christ would come into the world, when the Messiah would come into the world, this was the expectation of how He would be. He would judge according to His sight, decide disputes according to His ears. With righteousness, He would judge the poor. This is from Isaiah 11, Psalm 7. Psalm 143, uh, this talks about how he would in righteousness judge all things for the sake of the poor, for the sake of the needy. We get a little nervous because some of us have always been conservative, right? And... We often get sometimes unrighteously rebuked for not caring enough about the poor and the needy. And it's pointed out to us that that's what Christ did, and he did. He was righteous. And what did he say? The poor have the gospel preached to them. The, the sick are healed. Uh, uh, the, the, those that are in need are given to and if you want to see a snapshot of his, of his uh, ministry, he gave it to us in Luke chapter 3 where he go, went to Isaiah and talked about how he was caring for the needy and the poor and healing the lame and the sick and the blind. That's God's righteousness. And it makes us uncomfortable sometimes uh, because we have this rugged, individualistic, American view of things that everyone needs to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And if they're hungry, that's because they have failed somehow morally. And, th- and some of that may be true in some points. In time. But when we want to see the righteousness of God brought forth, Look at how Jesus behaved himself on this, in this life. I'm not saying be, uh, I'm not saying join the Liberal Party or something like that. I, I'm just saying look at this thing honestly. What was the righteous, what did the righteousness of God look like in the Old Testament and the New? Uh, the righteousness of God saves the afflicted. The righteousness of God delivers them from the oppressors the unrighteous judge ended up doing a righteous thing in saving the widow who cried unto him night and day from her oppressor. That was a picture of what God, a righteous God, would do to those that cry unto him. The scriptures almost uniformly say that we should care about those who have the least power in society. Who are those? Widows, orphans, and strangers. Widows, orphans, and so how many times? That, that's not just an Old Testament. That, that's New Testament. That, when we were studying James, is that not how he talked about pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, is to visit the fathers and the widows and to keep himself unspotted from the world? Who did God care about in the law? Widows, orphans, strangers, or aliens, depending on how you translate it. Widows, orphans, who are they? They're people that don't have a means of caring for themselves. He executes judgment for the fatherless. How often is that said in the scripture? He executes judgment for the widow. He loves. The sojourner, the stranger that is passing through the land. Uh, some of, uh, uh, be careful to entertain strangers, Hebrews 13. For some have entertained angels unaware. Talking about Abraham, even talking about Lot. That's how righteousness of God looks when it's brought forth. It, that may be uncomfortable to our conservative leanings. But that is, and I'm not speaking against conservatism, and I want to bring that bring another side of the coin out there here shortly. But think about the laws. This is uh, this is the righteousness of God brought forth in the way that we are commanded to, to behave. Think about the laws of reaping, where you would leave the corner of your fields. Who for who? The poor, the needy, the fatherless. The widow, the stranger. Ruth was all three. (laughs) Or, yeah, she was two of the three. (laughs) Right? Uh, So, and Boaz, by the way, was righteous (laughs) and just. How How was that righteousness brought forth in the story of Ruth? He was doing this. He was even doing more than that. He was leaving handfuls of purpose. He even let the poor walk after his own reapers and get as much as they could. That's godly. That's righteousness at work. Isaiah 1, he says, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and to the widow why because these are people that actually lack earthly power and no amount of of revolutionary activity is ever going to create a place where there are no orphans where there are there are no widows and there are no strangers in need so so this whole Uh, socialistic lie that we can create a just, equitable, and sustainable society. It's just that. It's a lie. There's always going to be needs. And he says, correct them the best you can by your own acts of righteousness. It's funny how socialists always want us to overthrow the government so someone else can take care of these things. (laughs) then they don't have to worry about it anymore and they can feel righteous. Well, I'm going to get the government to do this for me or that. Uh, But these lack earthly power because the poor are plundered, because they need, and they groan. God says, I will arise, Psalm 12. We are reminded, says Frame, of the situation of Israel. They were enslaved, they were in pain, they suffered, they were oppressed. And there God delivered them. There was much more to the deliverance than just the fact that they were oppressed because there were probably many oppressed people on the planet at that time, but he had a covenant with them. And they cried unto him. That's a very important here um, to see how this connects. And the saving of the remnant has always been God's righteousness because they have always been on the side of the oppressed and the needy. Their cause is righteous compared to that of their oppressors. Why? Because their oppressors care not about God. Their oppressors trust not in God. Their oppressors fear not God. Their oppressors are are contrary to His will and contrary to His work and contrary to His commands. Only in the Lord, Isaiah forty five. Only in the Lord it shall be said, "Our righteousness and strength to Him shall come." to Him to Him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against Him. Uh, I want just to think a little bit about, I mentioned socialism already. Liberation theology makes much of what I was talking about. And if this is the focus, um, then then they're they're right. They're wrong in their application, but they're right about this focus. The poor, the needy, the widows, the orphans, the strangers. They can hound on this all day. They just don't know how to apply it because they don't care about God. They care about politics, but they don't care about what God actually said. Liberation theology, therefore, uh, can make much of these biblical things, but they don't know how to apply them. They can declare all day long that God is on the side of the poor, you, you know what I'm talking about with liberation theology, right? Uh, the uh, conquistadors, not conquistadors, but, uh, but, uh, but uh, uh, back in the 80s, you had this with, uh, with uh, the, the, the Contras and stuff like that. Uh, uh, even today, we see this in, li- in, in, in uh, sectors of liberation theology uh, that are being taught still. And basically, that's just socialism using the Bible. <laughs> uh, and, but, but what are they doing? Why does it strike a chord with people with the, that, that take the Scripture seriously? Because so many people don't take these things seriously. These are the righteous acts of God. Amen? Now, certainly, the Scriptures care about the widows, orphans, and aliens, but they tend the, those that teach liberation theology tend to say that is only about people who are economically or somehow now socially uh, destitute, um, not accepted or what, what, whatever. Uh, that's, it it is also true that the oppressor is always condemned, but who is the oppressor? He's not just someone who is economically oppressing people or, or not accepting a baby or C. Scripture calls God's people the poor. Think about this here for a second. There's, a, there's people who are, don't economically have what they want and the Scriptures condemn them for it. Think about the sluggard, the slothful, right? You go to Proverbs. They don't have what they need because they refuse to get up and go get it. (laughs) All right, and God declares that they are unjust. They're not fitting in with what the Scriptures call the poor and the needy. Who are the poor and needy? The people who are unjustly oppressed, That is, against God's righteousness, they are being treated thus. And they are, too, people who turn to God after being unjustly oppressed. That's the definition of the poor. That's not the definition of many people who are deemed oppressed today. So when it says God is on the side of the poor, it's true, but you've got to understand what it means, poor, here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> this is a spiritual reality here, not just an economic reality. Often those things coincide, but, but people who refuse to turn to the Lord, to cry unto the Lord, to trust the Lord, to make the Lord their hope are not... Ultimately, the poor that are zeroed in on the scriptures by the scriptures. God tells judges not to be honest. Another thing, liberation theology does not get right. God does not tell anywhere in the Bible for judges on earth to side with the poor always. Right? I would like, I would like, uh, our former president's pastor, I was at Jeremiah Wright. He was a liberation theology guy. To show one place where it ever says, or I mean, just that's well, just a name in the hat. The one that came there's a lot of liberation. Uh, you got Jamar Tisby and others that are really pressing it now. Um, for them to be able to show in the scriptures one place it ever says the judge is supposed to side with the poor always. What is the judge supposed? To, what are judges of this earth supposed to do? Judge righteously, impartially. What do judges of the earth normally do? Who do they side with? The rich. The, rich. the people that have. The pe- that doesn't mean the rich are always oppressors. God sided with Abraham. Abraham was rich. God sided with Job. Job was rich. Rich, is, rich doesn't always mean bad. But what do we people do? Judges normally on the earth will, I have seen it in courtrooms here. Oh, this person is well-to-do. This person has political pool. I better judge with them. I've seen that in child protection cases. Where if it would have been a poor nobody that I brought for, brought, brought up uh, the same, these same charges, they would have had the book thrown at them. But since it's this well-to-do person, nod, nod, wink, wink. Because that's sinful human nature at work in the high seats of our land. That's naturally what happens with sinners. They're not to favor the poor or the rich. Why? Because God doesn't favor the poor economically or the rich economically. He doesn't. God is, un- God is no respecter of persons. If we're a respecter of persons, we're sinful. We're unrighteous. So we have to put this in biblical perspective. Who is, who, who, who is ultimately the poor, the needy, if you can can we point to one place in the scripture where someone is considered needy or poor that was delivered of God that didn't also say and they cried unto him it doesn't it's not there so there's, there are some people that are that are righteously oppressed Can you imagine a world where murderers are not righteously oppressed? (laughs) So you have to think of that. They have to be unjustly oppressed and they have to turn to God and trust in God and seek God to be the poor, the needy of which God delivers in the scriptures. I need to get to a stopping place. It's almost time, but, uh, Uh, So righteous, uh, we got to understand that the righteousness of God's righteous salvation is covenantal. Given to the poor remnant of believers. Uh, It's never suggested that God wants society to equally redistribute everything. That's not righteousness. That's striking princes for equity, which is said is stupid (laughs) or not wise in the King James English. Uh, So Marxists and Liberationalists want to say, well, we need to redistribute wealth. Nowhere in the scripture do they get that. You want to know why the early church was... Many people in the early church were selling their goods, laying at the apostles' feet for distribution, is because there were honestly people that needed it. And they gave unto them. And there was no compelling, like Ananias and Sapphira learned. (laughs) There was no compelling for them to give anything. They gave because of charity. They gave because of love. They distributed because of that. There is nothing that says that that is supposed to happen. But consider Romans 1. Uh, so this is not about... It requires equality of all people before the law. That's what, that's what true fair righteousness of God acting out is. Uh, and fairness in our dealings with one another. And ultimately when it comes to salvation... What is the background of salvation? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Coming back to this idea of salvation, it is the righteousness of God revealed. How? Because God is rescuing His poor. That's the good news. Martin Luther had such a problem with this as he was laboring under Catholic traditions about what God's righteousness, that it is something hanging over them like judgment ready to fall. And it wasn't until he saw God's righteousness in this text, Romans 1, 16 and 17, as being that which reveals God's salvation to everyone that believes that he find, found peace with God. It's by grace through faith. And ultimately, it's by what Christ did in delivering. Christ was working out God's righteousness in delivering his people when he hung upon the cross. Romans 3 tells us that. That he came to be their propitiation. He came to ransom them from their debts, from their sins. And righteously pay those things and deliver them from the unjust oppressors, spiritually speaking. It's righteousness that saves us. He was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So that is God's salvation, His righteous acts and deeds. How he brought those things forward. Not clearing the guilty as an unjust judge would do. But bringing forth righteousness through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saw this and proclaimed it. And the New Testament demonstrated it in its fullness. In Jesus Christ. I hope you received something this morning in this lesson. Are there any uh, comments, any complaints, anything anybody wants to assert? Well, then, take about 10, 15 minutes and we'll start again.